You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. to begin today in this discussion of form and formlessness is to do something that I do in one of my classes called uh, coming to our senses. And it's been focused on women. I know we have some men here and I'm very happy that you've joined us. But in all of our systems, our sensory system is a way of knowing. So if you want to, along with putting where you are, want to play a little game Use, take the word form and just sit with it in your sensory system and then free flow some words in the chat. What is, what is that word form? How does it shape inside of you? How does it land inside of your tissue? Not your brain, but your tissue. And then as you sense into that, See what words tend to pop into your mind or images that you can then language. It's especially fun to add verbs. So we have structure, stuck, shaping, body, bounded, conclusion, matter, arrived, earth, moss, rock, blooming, edges, moving so fast, edges, container, contents, Stiff, non-moving, behaving as supposed to, boundaries, liquefying, containerizing. (laughs) Thank you, Margie. Uh, (laughs) Inner and outer spaces, potting, boundaries. So now what happens when you take the word formlessness and sit with that and let it 
land in your tissue, land in your belly, land in your mouth even as a word, formlessness. So we have babbling and fluid and unbounded riverizing and air and fluid flowing and death and gushing and splattering, juicy liquefying, breathing free, water safe, juicy, gushing, oneness. I may have missed some, but there, I love them flowing in. Thank you. <clears throat> so we're gonna, um, so we're going to introduce ourselves because some people know Sarah and some people know Liz and Sarah and Liz know each other. Um, but um, so I'm going to ask you, Sarah, to let people know a little bit about yourself. Um, who, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> wow, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> well, keep it small. Keep, keep yeah. it a form. Form. I will go form. Um, I'm Sarah Burden, and I am in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, Pewa territory right now. Um, you know, I feel in such a moment of emergent transition with my work that I don't really even know how to how to speak about that totally potentially in the way that I, I used to. Um, I am a guide. I am an explorer of movement. I am a wilderness guide. I do, I do a lot of work and I, I, I feel like translation communion in the wilderness and with nature. Um, you just came back from uh, what, four day, five day? I just came back from a six day backpacking trip um, with a group I've actually, a group that was a, it started out as a nine month immersion that began in the fall of 2019 and ended up taking three years to actually complete because of all of the interruption of COVID and uh, things in my personal life, my mother's death and different things. So we just did six days in the San Pedro Parks Wilderness in Northern New Mexico. And I am um, just came out of the field yesterday, and that is very alive in me. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And you've done wilderness in other parts of the world as well. Yeah, I have. I've been a guide and an educator in Indonesia and in India for parts of my time um, and have spent quite a bit of time in the, in the natural world in Indonesia and and in the Himalayas, um, only in a small little corner in Sikkim in Northern India. Um, but yeah, have had a, a chance to explore jungles and oceans and really powerful land in, in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to be there with, with groups and, and kind of exploring that together. Just a total mind opening of what it is to sit 200 feet up in a tree and sleep there. 
yeah. and in the bird world and in the tops of the trees and on the floor of the jungle and and with people who still live in a subsistence relationship with the jungle and the earth in terms of hunting and um, gathering and growing food in in the jungle and yeah yeah that's a big I don't know what else to say yeah What's that, Liz? and and I, I think you should also bring in uh that you did a TED talk that you know that years ago or, mm -hmm. or it feels like years ago maybe um that you've really played uh also with um sexuality with mm -hmm. so you also teach um uh, archetypal qigong this is good liz thanks for the prompts <laughs> thanks for the leading questions yes. um uh, yes i have uh i started studying more formally archetypal qigong about 10 years ago um and in the Mogadou system and and that work for me felt like I came into a system of form actually that I had been longing for for my whole life I had I do have a background in body work I studied watsu and water dance and a lot of aquatic forms of body work and craniosacral therapy and um that my shiatsu teacher in my studies was my very first introduction to five element theory. Shinzo Fujimaki was an incredibly influential man in my life. And he actually, as I look back, was, was the first, he, I did Qigong for the very first time with him. And he brought archetypal significance into, into movement. Mm -hmm. And that work moving into a relationship with Chinese five element cosmology into a circular cosmology and working in the water for years, living at, at Harbin Hot Springs, living at the school and essentially spending almost hour for hour, half or a quarter, you know, a three quarter, a quarter of my days in water for years was a profound experience for me. And you know, in the work of, I think, what it is to awaken and come into our bodies, you know, I came out of my work as a wilderness therapy guide working um, with teenagers was kind of my first work out of college and spent, again, years with a backpack on my back and walking in the desert in Utah. And I moved like a person who walked with a backpack on their back for years on end. You know, I felt that in my system. I felt really lucky. I could walk forever, you know, and there were pieces of my personal life that fed into the way I inhabited my system, fed into the way that coming into my sexual body was extremely interrupted by, a, you know, a pre-puberty and a puberty that was saturated with a dying father and you know a, a multi-year process of his body in disintegration in you know his bedroom in the back corner and i i went into the to the wilderness in uh i mean that work changed me and and then received a session received a watsu session from a friend in salt lake city when i was doing the work in the wilderness and had an experience of a movement in my body. I had never felt a flow of my body in water, that kind of grace and fluidity and sort of 
supple fluid. I had never experienced that. And that experience began bringing me into my sexuality in a, a, a really new and gentle and also powerful way. And and you know, my time in in at Harbin Hot Springs is actually, you know, something I think I could I want to riff about a little bit today, Liz, of of you know what it is to actually be in a world that is that values formlessness over form, how that how that moves into an, an um, like a denial of boundaries, a denial of of integrity that actually comes through system. Anyway, I, I spent time at Harbin Hot Springs and, you know, had a living question for a, a lot of my life of what is a sexual inhabitance that is beyond conditioning? What is a sexual inhabitance that is actually born from inside and is about being totally who I am and not needing to become something other than who I am to inhabit the fullness of my sexuality? And I in my very early years, my first studies um, with Mogadal through archetypal Qigong forms and through a kind of mythology that felt deeply resonant, had an experience of, a, of a, an embodiment and a, an embodiment through form after spending years in the water, years of letting things dissolve coming back on land and inhabiting forms that gave a place for, for, for aspects inside of me to actually begin moving their way into form and expression related to sexual energy that was sexualized and non-sexualized in the world. That sexual energy in no way needs to always translate as sexualized energy, sexual energy as procreative creative energy. And so I dedicated my work for a long time to sexuality work. And um, in that, started working on college campuses and doing consent-based education in the sort of explosion of Title IX and sexual, a sort of sexual reckoning in that world in the United States. And, you know, understanding that much like we do in the United States for sure, is that we come at things from the top down and the outside in, that it was a legal conversation, it was a semantic conversation, it was about handbooks and policies and language and nowhere in there were we actually meeting these people and giving them some kind of map of what was happening in their systems and in their bodies. What is consent when it actually comes from here is not just a transactional word, it gets you out of the consequence and checks a handbook box. So um, anyway, I did end up doing two TED Talks out, kind of out of that work. I did one really focused on my work on college campuses and then another um, that is a more general talk around sex. The title is Good Sex is Not About Knowing What You're Doing. Um, so yeah, that that has been a piece of my work too. So let's bring in um, the Dr. E, where we met, uh, Dr. Estes, um, uh, women who run with the wolves and how that has woven uh, or dissolved or mm. 
something in you that what was that pull into her work um mm. and you actually were there supporting her and working for her in a in some kind of capacity uh at her week-long retreats yeah you know that book as i think with actually many women and people like people had been telling me to read that book for years and I never touched it. It was actually a boyfriend who was like, you should read this book. You should read this book. And uh, he he had given it to his sister. He'd given it to all these people. Oh, James Healy. Thank you. And it was sort so it was in my consciousness. And then it wasn't until 2010 that in the span of a week, three people told me to read Women Who Run With the Wolves. And they all told me to read the story of the Red Shoes. And I was on my way to the Chama River with one of my very best friends. And I said, we're bringing this book and we're reading this chapter. There is no accident in how many people have told me to read this. And she and I sat on the banks of the Chama River in Northern New Mexico and read this chapter out loud to each other over four days. We took four days to read this out loud to each other, just sitting in chairs, looking at this river. And very quickly, I understood that the book, I mean, I can barely call it a book. Like yeah. to me, that piece of work is an oracle. It is a transmission. It is, is a doorway into like an actual living world of archetype and mythology. And when I read The Red Shoes, I had such a awakening and reckoning of everything that was out of line in my life around my work. I was at the time actually working in the film industry, working in the production department of a studio film industry in New Mexico and was like, this stops now. Like this is sucking my soul. I am losing energy. This is not what I wanna be doing. And walked out of that week and quit that job and opened to what was next for me. and. And in, on that, you know, on that trip out in the wilderness, I, I really reconnected with a desire to be working with people in nature again. And that led to my job through a company called Where There Be Dragons that uh, brought me to Asia to, to work. And there was something about working with that story in the wilderness over so much time and you know, reading a paragraph and then putting the book down and staring at the water for 30 minutes and then allowing these things to bubble up out in, inside of us and just talking to each other about what was starting to rearrange. And I threw a really, you know, my friend at the time was like, you have to find this woman. You have to find her. And I was like, this is, there's no way I'm going to find her or, you know, be able to connect with her. And it turned out that she was living and working within a 50 mile radius of where I was living in Boulder at the time and had a friend who was her, basically her producer's assistant who let me know that a position was open to, you know, assist at her trainings and started studying with her in 2014 and began, you know, was, was so impacted by that work and then began sitting with her sometimes multiple times a year for many years and that book, when I started my own business, you know, I wanted to work under my own umbrella. I wanna be working in a wilderness context 
that wasn't just going out for outdoor adventure and essentially meeting the wilderness in the same way we meet everything in a capitalistic colonized mindset which is i'm going to use the wilderness for a personal gain i'm going to go track my miles clock my speed bag this peak do front stay in a front country mindset the entire time i am in the wilderness i have see i i see it more often than not in people who engage in the outdoors that there's actually not a transition into what it is to be immersed in nature and to let that penetrate and permeate the mind and the body in a way that starts to actually bring us out of what i call the front country mindset and so when i started running my own trips because i i wanted to work with what i had learned in the water i wanted to work with five elements and by then i was studying mogadal forms and i wanted to work with forms and I wanted to bring those stories into the wilderness in the, in the same way that I had experienced that. And to this day, those stories have punctuated in the last 10 years, the biggest points of change and realization and outward shift and transformation that I have experienced. It was in reading The Red Shoes again, 10 years after that first reading that I knew I needed to take a sabbatical and put every known version of my work down and pause. It was in reading the La Llorona story a year ago that I had an extremely powerful creative reclamation and just came out of the wilderness with this group and we read that story again. And there is, so for me, the forms, the archetypal Qigong forms and those stories are, are the same thing. What they are for me, and I've, I've, I've sort of been understood them as, as maps. They are maps to be inside of an archetypal Qigong form that is a, is a studied energetic story essentially is to be inside of a map where we are being given instruction and at the same time, they are mirrors. So when, when we're inside of a map, we actually start seeing ourselves. So in a story, you know, Dr. E's words are, we lay our life down next to a story and you start seeing where are, where are we lost? Where have we been captured? Where are we asleep? Where are, where are the characters in the story who are all a part of our own psyche? Where are they functioning or, or not functioning? And an entire story is a cohesive map. And that at the same time of reading the story or doing the forms, we're also inside of the medicine. Yes. That in form and story, we have map, mirror, and medicine in a single gesture, in a single story. And to be inside of that kind of holographic power of something that is that potent and speaks not only to what it is to be in a deeply powerful and palpable relationship with the unseen world, it also allows us to understand what it is to show up as human in the topside world, in, in this life, in this moment, in our lives, in the world as it is. And I find them these incredible bridges that, that, that answer our deepest questions of what is it to be, to be human? What is it to be human in a, in a world and how to meet that world with 
with the intelligence of the soul, with the intelligence and coherence of the soul through this body. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm. Mm. And one of the most powerful things about working those stories in the wilderness is that every time I never know what story we're working before we go out and the story always presents itself so clearly and then the landscape begins to mirror the story. The archetypes in the story begin to present themselves through the landscape every time in a way that is, I mean, it is, it is profound to be in, to be inside of that, you know, a, a world of that level of mirroring and serendipity doesn't feel quite like the right word, but that kind of thing, you know, it's, it's living. So yes. my, my, my question would be, is it not the other way around? Is it not that as you enter into the field of living kin and more than human beings, that you begin to know the story you need to work with? Absolutely. You're not actually marrying. All of a sudden you are recognizing the information mm. they are providing. And in that they are shifting your consciousness. And then we as humans like story, we're story makers. So we, we gather the story that feeds this longing and connection that is always an invitation. It's not a separate. I think it is that. And I think it's a, I think it's a conversation. I mean, if we are to say between the three, right? Between or the two, it, it's like feeling into the field, which is which is mirroring or speaking out what is, for example, in the longing of the eleven people I'm surrounded by, and in the living field of nature, and it becomes it, it's like comes together in an offering of because it's the same thing it's like if, if i'm working with the law it's the mythology of the land totally it's absolutely the mythology of the land and and when we get out there i can see how the stories come out of the land yes how the archetypal stories that then play out in the human world are so visible and and come out of the land and come out of the natural intelligence of the land but then what happens when humans interrupt that natural intelligence there. So that is part of what happens in a story it's like if there wasn't interruption there wouldn't be a story right it's like i mean there would be a story but it wouldn't be the same story that's happening so for example in the la llorona it is it is a story about reclaiming creative life and it is all about the, a river it is all about the river it is water and purifying and cleansing and where has that been dammed where has it been diverted where is it dried up and where has it been poisoned poisoned by the stories we tell ourselves about our creative gifts and the complexes that live inside of us and where has it been poisoned by the overculture and by what would seek to silence and cease that creative flow in in the service of another agenda and so it's like when that story presents itself 
it's like feeling, and we are in monsoon season here in Northern New Mexico. We just sat through the most extraordinary storms I have ever been in my life, you know, under a tarp on a mountaintop with thunder and lightning and hail and rain. And in the stories, I mean, it's not 30 minutes after I read from the book, what, what the sort of manifestation of the La Llorona story is in Northern New Mexico, which comes through flash floods and storms that we are inside of a storm and get to watch the valley like gush with tributaries and new rivers that were not present the day before because of the flood of river. And to be on the land in that kind of relationship and transmission from the water in the valley begins to literally rearrange something in the cellular system and inside of the psyche around what it is to free the river. What is it? to free the river inside in order to, to let life flow and, and to move and, and how powerful it is to get to be there for the event of that kind of a storm in a valley that an hour earlier did not have these tributaries running, running through it. And to, to get to be in that kind of communion with the land and then to, to, to feel what are the gestures of form that want to come through this human being. You know, in, in the story and, and in so much of Dr. E's work, she, she talks a, a lot about the, the, the sort of flow and the impulse of the soul and then the place of the animus. You know, she's a Jungian psychology and, and the archetypal movement of the masculine function of the psyche, of the animus, that could be personified as a kingly, a kingly force in the psyche. So you have all of these plays of stories of masculine and feminine characters, but bringing those all into a conversation of what all inside of the own psyche, our own psyches. And that the health of the animus, that the animus, the kingly function in the psyche is what brings form to bear in the world what is able to bring the vision down or up from the roots of the earth or down as an idea and make it manifest in the world that knows how to actually make a bridge from the unseen world into the seen world. Mm. And that is part of actually this week as I was sitting, I was thinking about this conversation, Liz, and what, you know, I just get so juiced up by the, confluence of our work together and the conversation and what our work together and your work has done for me and in me and with me and I sort of see it as as the work of form is the work is animus it's it's like coming out of the formless place where we allow things to dissolve we allow for a flood of the waters and then the exploration of form is how do I bring through all of the potency and what has just what has just gotten what you know what has just flooded the delta in the formless world and bring that to bear as a creative force in this world in this moment with all the stuff of the world and it's been this really juicy thing to explore the dance of form and formlessness because i think it is so easy for us as humans to have 
to to I don't know if gets the right word to have a leaning toward one, a favor toward one that doesn't quite allow for the nourishment and regeneration and po creative potential and innovation of the other. So there are some of us who continue to insist on form, on maintaining form all the time, even when the form is dead, the form is done. It is an old form. And then I think there are some of us or in moments in our life where we lean so far into the potential pleasure of dissolution and formlessness, but that what begins to happen is a resistance of that standing up in vertical reality and moving into form in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and part of one of the sicknesses that, that can happen in us as much as a depletion that comes from overgiving is actually a sort of contortion that can happen from holding back what it is we have to express. Mm -hmm. a, a sickness of holding back the riches, holding back the river, holding back what actually wants to become a tree, become a river, become a findable piece of the landscape of this human life, not just for ourselves, but, but in the, for each other. Mm. Creative gift, you know, like what is it to, to, to what, it, what is the creative act? Yeah. Whether that's making a meal or dancing or writing or tending anything to make it grow. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thanks, Liz, for the questions. They're very yeah. helpful. I want people to get to know you. Um, our work does flow really nicely together. And um, um, what do you want to say about yourself and your? So what I want to say is I want to, I, I pulled up a couple things from Stalking Wild because to me, Stalking Wild uh, I wrote in 2018 and 2019, it was published, um, that feels like I didn't write it. It just feels like it wrote me. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I can't tell you how it even showed up or uh, why it showed up or it, it was really interesting to me. You know, it was so, so different than um uh anything i had written before uh and and so i i want to go back to kind of a little bit about uh the fact that i'm not a therapist and although i focus on the psoas and people always want to correct their psoas or heal their psoas or you know have a functional psoas i really could care less about any of that i mean i've learned over 45 years and this amount about the psoas and I certainly can help people direct that inquiry to the people who might be able to support them as well as my own work. But um, I was part of, um, for people who don't know, I was part of an all-male sculpture department and I was a very young woman and basically I had no interest in art either. <laughs> I actually don't have a lot of interest in, you know, very few things. Um, and, but I end up in these places, right? And part of it was, uh, I, you know, Uranus is in my first house. And just, you know, like chaos is what I know and love. And so um, 
I'm quite capable of creating chaos in, in a dynamic. And and the 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 guy who who ran the Boston Museum School of Fine Arts um, recognized that because I came in with these gnarly root system sculptures that I had all over the place that like was bringing life to me, something speaking inside of me, like roots, like gnarly roots were just medicine and were part of my scholotic pattern and just were, you know, oozing out of me. So I, I, I was looking at form in my work and looking this morning at what was I doing. And uh, and one of the things I was doing was shaking up this all culture department, which was focused on wood, stone, hard angles, right? Form, you know, sculpture is form, <laughs> you know? So I was having fun and I was challenging the structure of form and introducing unorthodox materials, tangling up the status quo. I was not interested in being a serious artist, rather I longed for freedom from whatever felt bound deep within. The art world met my need to shock while also holding space to transform my into curiosity. So to me, it was a metamorphosis that led me to explore somatic awareness. And once I discovered that movement changed perception, I was smitten. And through a lens of human potential theories, core awareness became a lifelong inquiry and a flourishing. So that's kind of who I am. Um, in terms of the physicality of all of that, I can read something maybe a bit later. But in terms of this conversation around form and formlessness, um, my, my current perspective on what you just said about that inquiry of what uh, wants to show up is no longer a front cortex event okay so i do like to think i'm not necessarily academic oriented at all in fact i i failed in school uh, m many times um so the fact that i wrote you know three or four books is kind of you know an awesome event but um it has nothing to do with being academic <laughs> however um those are forms. Those are, you know, there's, there's like something substantial here and they're edited and, and actually produced by, you know, publishing houses, which makes me more, you know, um, <laughs> uh, but my personal, uh, uh, curiosity lies in uh, playing. And one of the things I adore about you is that you'll play, you know, I need playmates. And, you know, so when I find one, I hold on to them for dear life. It's like, oh, shit, here's somebody who knows how to play, you know, because um, they're so far and few between um, because we've been structured and taught. And so I was very rebellious. I was very chaotic. School didn't work for me. I failed in it. So I'm not I'm kind of unbound by the academic belief system that we learn and we organize. It's like the a lot of the conditioning in that world I hit up against all the time. So it, it really didn't matter to me. You know, it it was kind of just fuck it. I really could care less, you know. So um, 
you know, I had my, you know, leather jacket, my cigarette, and, um, and I didn't have a motorcycle, but, you know, I would have gotten on the back of a fucking motorcycle, and, you know, uh, so there's this whole kind of rebellion of form of structure as known. But when I do the hydrating movement fluid going into the fluid system, which is Emily Conrad's capacity to make that transmission and, and allow something that is not known to, to appear. Um, and I deeply, deeply adore her for that gift of uh, formlessness. Um, and the transmission that she understood that all life is fluid. And if we can allow ourselves to stop insisting on homeostasis, we can arrive at a, in a field of energy, just like you arrive in by the river, you know, you show up somewhere and then that river starts to transform you. It starts to reshape you, but you have to not be resistant to that and even if you are resistant it becomes a dance so it's a it's a way of being that i'm curious about and what i love about the what we're calling what actually daryl sanchez gave me the words vertical fluidity is this capacity to then maintain that fluidity in a form of humanness of moving through uh, and being part of the human world um, and functioning in the human world. Um, and that in fact, it, 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 it actually enhances and improves. It's not either or, it just is. So when I think about like what wants to show up in me in a creative way, it's actually not a thought form. At this point, all my teaching, all my one-on-ones, all my collaborations, uh, all my life, basically. You know, I'm very isolated um, at this point. You know, um, I live very much alone. Um, my hermit, my hermithood is ending soon, but um, but it it is it's kind of yeah. COVID really you know created that. Um, but but what is I'm still having a fabulous time um, because I'm I'm interacting with more than more than human life. That's my real connection, and and so ground and literal, you know, tree and you know what we define as these things start to start to dissolve, and so my my insistence is dissolving in a way that I no longer creative impulses no longer come from a thought specifically about trying to think about what does this mean or how should I apply this or what how should I do this but from impulses and so what I think is happening if I was going to define it create form around it would be or contain it would be I think the integration of my what what human beings call the primitive brain or the, the brainstem is now as dominant as the cortex and possibly more so. 
but it's actually informing the cortex rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. So there's a dissolution of the frontal cortex and the left brain as being the dominant perspective in which we view life. It's, it's really, truly shifting for me. And, um, and it's very exciting because the, the ideas or, cause I do hear things in words, um, or I feel things in words or words, words show up. And I did that as a child. I would sit and make a word, a sound, actually a sound and vibrate it and repeat it over and over. I never knew I was going to do that actually and make money from it. But, um, but uh, you know, I would just like say a word over, it became a sound and then it would start to put me into some altered state. I can remember sitting on the toilet. I would do this like hours or it seemed like for a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a seven-year-old. And we had a, a bathroom that had the white um, octagons, I think they are, um, tile that are small, that 1950s kind of 40s. And, you know, like, so it had some matrix, right? It was like a, a beehive, a bee comb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would like stare at it. And then I would go into this altered state, sound vibration of where the word had no meaning, like no, none, no thought form could show up that said, that's what means. You know, it's like I, I had no form around the word. I did the same thing with the little ants out, hanging out with them watching them. I would enter a world that children know, that we know. We, we know if we're not too structured in life. We know this world. We know how to be part of the, um, the more than human world. And we left it. And, um, and so I'm dissolving back into it. And, and I'm in Kansas and I voted no. So fuck that, okay? There were no signs all over my neighborhood. So for anybody who thinks Lawrence, Kansas or the middle of Kansas doesn't know what the fuck's going on, I just wanna say that. Yeah, no on what? Give context for that, Liz. No on getting rid of the constitution of the state of Kansas ideas around abortion. We are the guiding light for all states to not lose women's rights to health care as they see fit. So, you know, you were talking about, well, how does form show up where you actually function in the real world, human real world, right? That's how it does for me. You can do both. You didn't know that? Oh, yeah, you've been in the wilderness. Yeah, it was a huge, it was. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I guess, yeah, I missed it. <laughs> we just lost our human rights to our own choices, right? You, you know that part of it. Okay, so we just, you know, we just lost Roe v. Wade, which is, you know, the idea that, that human, human bodies, women in particular, get to choose their own health care. That's the government is not regulating your contraception or your your reproductive rights. And Kansas was the first state that brought it to the voters. And if they would have said yes, then politicians couldn't make a decision on what women can and cannot do 
in their lives. And we said no. So that's like a huge, huge, huge marker because for those of you in Europe, Kansas is the center of the dysfunctional, not, not that it's dysfunctional necessarily, but it's the heart, it's called the heartlands. And in the heartlands, you know, people assume it's conservative versus the borders, you know, the edges where water and land meet, which is usually more innovative. But here in the heartlands, there is this wealth of wild women <laughs> who, I don't know what they did, but you know, they, they came along um, out here, whatever promises that were made and whoever they destroyed on the way, but they, they know ground and they know the earth and the earth here is an ocean and it's a dried up ocean. So speaking of earth changing shape, when there's, uh, when the rains don't come enough, there's these like huge cracks start coming into the field here, like literally out in my yard, you just see these, the earth is like, and you can start seeing these cracks open up that are just so intense because it's like a riverbed that has, it's lost its ability, right? Because the, the grasslands here go down six to eight feet. So what they do is hold the water there. But now that we don't have prairie, they just create these huge cracks, you know, and then the next torrential rain fills the cracks up for a while and it becomes mud. And I mean, like deep mud, like if you walk in it, you get pulled down six or eight feet. Mm -hmm. There is something here in the field of the literal prairie lands that is about knowing, about rooting, about landing. And this is where I wrote Stalking Wild South. Because the land wrote it for me. And I love hearing you talk about, I love being, you know, to be with you. I have had the chance to be with you in Kansas twice. And one of the things that you say about Kansas and that you love about being there is that there is so much common sense. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I learned from you in who you are as a person all the time, whether it's just like a random phone call on a Tuesday or hanging out in your house or watching you conduct a class or in a teaching field is it's like your work, what you're talking about, about the animal brain, about the lizard brain actually coming up in, um, influence as much as the thinking brain and that that is a good thing that there is so much of your work that is has such it's more than a deep trust it's like the evidence of what it is to be in the animal body and to actually the impulses of the lizard brain as a biological intelligence the coherence of a skeletal system and landing in bone on the planet that that creates grounded common sense and functional instinct and an ability to walk and move in the world in a way that is extremely like as ordinary as the chipmunk running across the grass it's like i have been so deeply influenced by 
there's nothing conceptual actually about your work, even though you do the work to to build build the the, the concept doorway into it. There's such a trust about what it is to inhabit to to be a body in its intelligence, in its bio coherence, and how that actually creates a profoundly functional ability to show up and be in the world and meet reality as an animal. And but so your value of like Kansas and the, the incredible common sense that lives there inside of a field where you're getting a transmission of an entire book from the land, that that came to you through dreams from the land, you needed to be in Kansas. And that to me is, is like what we're talking about. It's like the the conversation, the dance, the breath between form and formlessness. I mean, they're not two things, but language does that. Well, that is, that is, it's the tide, right? It's yes, tide. it is the tide. And so this is a good place to read one more thing from Stocking, which is about form. And, and I, as I, you know, I just kind of put in the, question block, you know, what is, what, where did I write about form? And I want to read, and some of you know this man and, and live in his, on his, in the same land. So it, this is the uh, embryological gesture, uh, essay two, mm. a living model of emerging and thriving. Mm. Uh, Vanderval, who is, yeah, Vanderval is a, uh, a Dutch embryologist, urges us to understand that you are not a product of cell division. You are an organism. You are not becoming human. You are a human becoming. This is our biological intelligence is a continuous process of emerging and thriving. Applying the embryonic paradigm to our understanding of core so as become soulful and personal as well as cosmic and elemental gone is a fix me impulse and in its place sprouts the mystery and wonder of life that generates vital questions reshaping a living inquiry what is life communicating what is the meaning of embodied core intelligence how does our own life support these vital relationships? So to me, part of what supports our vital relationship to emerge is the disillusionment, is the dissolving, is the, is the ability, if the, to me, the intelligence of life, if you want to locate it, is in the fluid, because all life is fluid. But I'm also understanding that from an indigenous perspective, we also have a belief that some things are dead and some things are alive, but that actually is, isn't possible. <laughs> so because the universe, as we know from the, 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 the web, the, the events that are happening with the new astrological I mean, you know, astronomy um, lens is letting us know that that's not true. So now we have to kind of recognize the macro and the micro is reflecting itself like that mirror you're talking about. But you're also looking at that even what is dead is still in movement. We are the ones who could define whether it's dead or not. 
So the rock that we think is dead is actually a living entity or energy field. And, and, and so, you know, I, now I'm looking not only as, oh, fluid is intelligence, which is what I speak to a lot, but I'm also recognizing that my response to that uh, rock, which is very, has a lot of form, right? Has a lot of structure to it, has a lot of density to it. I already have a judgment around that rock, you know, and, and I'm reading, I'm reading a book called Sand Talk in which, you know, the suggestion that you might have to approach the rock very differently than you would the river. That your, your actual vital relationships to life is based on your assumptions of what you think it is that you're relating to rather than how could I be responsive enough to come in relationship or what does that even mean to come into relationship with life? Like that's what I'm exploring right now in, in my own self, like my own, you know, like, like it's, it's, you know, like I was, I was recognizing that there's enough fluidity in my tissue that when I sit in my garden and I watch a hibiscus flower the other day, my hibiscus flowers were opening up and most of them have been dissolving because it's, you know, 104 and everything is just melting. Okay. They're just dying. They can't even blossom. They can't flourish. Okay. It, there's too much heat. Um, but this particular day, it had rained all night the night before. And so this blossom was starting to open and I'm sitting out there having my tea and I'm looking at this hibiscus and I'm admiring it and I'm loving it up. And then I realized I'm actually can see it, this other flower opening. Now I have never watched a flower open without a time lapse on a video or something, right? You, you know, it's opening one minute, it's closed. The next minute it's open, you know, it's like, and sometimes it's in between, but you can't see it. But I actually sat there and watched the vibrational field in which I could actually see it start. And I thought to myself, gosh, look mm. at what all that fluid movement has done. You actually can see life happening in the moment it's happening. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, mm -hmm. that's about as functional as you can get, right? It's like, oh, I'm, you know, the, the now moment. <laughs> I was having a now moment in which it wasn't just now, it was a whole movement. And, and it was so fabulous, you know, and part of me wants to film it and part of me wants to document. I mean, you know, like I, I'm watching all these parts of myself, like not know how to be with the immensity of what I was actually witnessing and, and, and actually participating in. And that's a, a, decom a, a dissolving of a construct that you don't know when it's going to happen. So, so to me, dissolving, you know, the, the, the idea that we have to dissolve, that life does dissolve to become potent again, to reshape itself. You know, we keep going, is it now? Has it just happened? You know, will it ever happen? You know, it's like, but the, the movements that you and I do, and when we do them together, I do have to say, and we did partly create this because we are going to 
And we are going to do this class together. And we have worked together before. So I know both online and in present, what happens when we spend time dissolving on the floor, you know, and just doing our who's and our ha's and our whatever's and our pauses and our hanging out. And, and when you can be in water, like some of you have gone to Italy with me and been in incredible water where we just sit there and, you know, hang out in water that is very nurturing and nourishing and your tissue gets more and more and more responsive but then you go you know somewhere and you become this form again but what i love is when i'm with you and we go then standing and go into these archetypal stories and movements to me it's like we're moving with the mountains we're moving with the terrain. We're all of a sudden, not just, uh, not, I don't even want to say not just, but you know, the, the, the deep level of slime that we're dissolving into that is the potency of life. It's that energy you're talking about that now shows up into form. And, mm -hmm. but it also moves back down and moves back right. up and moves back down. It's not one or the other. It's right. all of a sudden you're doing the two simultaneously. Right. And I don't think you could do what you do as well as you do it in the sense of how beautifully you, as a female Qigong teacher, which I do want to say, I think there's probably a difference there. Um, you bring something to it through those other experiences you had of spending so much time in Watsu, in the water, in the the rebirthing, the embryological story, you know? Yeah. And so there's something, there's something really, really, it, there is a transmission there. I'm very taken, and it's not like I've never done Qigong before and thought it was valuable. I have, you know, but it didn't call to me in the same way until I started working with, and maybe it was who I am, but there was something about the way that you can do, you can go both places. It, it, you're not going from form into a fluid way, which many teachers are teaching Western Qigong into, which is very helpful, right? They start mm -hmm. to feel flow, standing, but there's still a structure. Uh -huh. If you go into the dissolving, which you've talked about, like there's something potent that happens because you see. So speak to that, what you see, because you've worked with both kinds of people, people who are walking off the street who say, OK, I want to do this movement versus people who have gone into this fluid way that we've worked with, where all of a sudden something's changed in the room. Something's there's uh -huh. a potency. There's a potency. There is a, a, a yin and a yang. There is. Right flow of movement it's not one or the other yeah want to talk about that you know i'm going to answer that or get to that in a from a sort of circuitous way but one of the you know I, my time in the water i mean i still say the water is my root teacher like the water taught me through tr through transmission of an emerge Im immersion there for so many years and what it was to be a practitioner in the water with another body in my arms and it is the place where i started learning and understanding on a visceral somatic level 
the difference between what I wanted and what is wanted Mm. between what I want to happen and what wants to happen. And in the micro, you know, I feel you, Jumana here, Jumana Sophia is here and we studied in the water together. And I think both came apprenticed with the water from a similar kind of longing and place. But, but what it is to have a body in my arms in the water and to feel the like micro places of when I can feel I'm, I'm moving that body where I think that body should go versus allowing the unwinding of the body to happen and to get the immediate feedback through a fluid world in the water and to start seeing this unfurling. We called them body mudras, that the body would go into full body mudras and shapes that were part of part of the process that happens unwinding on the floor with you, which is the, the process of like, uh, the, the, the animal body going where it needs to go to create coherence, whether that is into a ball, whether that is stretching out. I mean, and you go through in an hour session of pro- profound, profound thing, event in a body. And so to be in the water, exploring those edges of, of dissolution, but through form with another body in, in my arms, and what wants to happen through the fluid system. And then to come back out on land and to feel in my own system, the, sat, the, the, the feeling of satisfaction and like rightness about coming back into gravity, loving the feeling of coming out of the water and then feeling myself on the earth and on land. And, and sort of the, the flow and the dance between and what was so powerful about the first time we taught together I experienced your work for the first time so it's like we were both in each other's workshops as we were teaching together and when you brought us into fluid movement on the earth what I had was a profound experience of 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 my of the water in gravity Mm. and the and the what that means, which is to stand on the earth in bone and in gravity and to still let that be able to move inside of this tissue and to express. Because I think there was in some ways, but when I guess I was living there, I mean, there really was a really fluid thing that was happening between land and water. And I also was studying a lot of land-based modalities, shiatsu massage, cranial work, and then going into the water. And what was so profound for me was it was sort of like answering the question of, I know these aren't two things. So also coming from a culture of, you know, a culture of new age spirituality in a water-based community where most of the people are living and floating around in the water all day long and watching the pervasive culture of a lack of boundaries of a lack of an ability to stand in self and show up in integrity to speak truth to make a translation from what was happening there into the world to actually be in the world to be in the world with a functioning animus that could travel between 
the topside world and the, and the unseen world and the river beneath the river. To see that as a handicap of what it was is a, as a culture inside of a water-based community. And then, and there's a way that I just have always, I think, been a very, I don't know, of the world kind of person, in the world kind of person. And so that didn't ever fit for me as a, as a way. And I, but I noticed it. And, and partly what I then noticed there was in the world of sexuality, how that became such a pervasive culture of the new age spiritual bypass out of sexual inhabitants that includes integrity, that includes body-based instinct and intuition, that just there's, there's like a world that has a profoundly deep shadow side that is being offered and sold as sexual wakefulness that is, I would say, dangerous, misguided, distorted, all kinds of things. Yes. And so when I, when I left there, it was like I needed to leave the water. And it was so fascinating to then find myself living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, in this desert, <laughs> through, a, you know, being led very deeply from a world of water to this red earth and this ecosystem of earth. And shortly after started studying the Mogadal forums and found that I so needed form after being in a world of formlessness and water for so long. And, and found in those forms were the, some of the same gestures that would unfurl and un, that would start unfurling in the water in a body finding its way to coherence. So it would be like, you know, in a form, let's say in a Mogadal form, let's say I'm doing, I'm doing this, right? And then I'm coming into here. That's exactly what I would be doing with a body in the water, would be following their opening here and then the, and then the coming back in. And so I started experiencing that I was, I was doing the water work, standing in verticality, but how deeply important it was for me to be in gravity, in the vertical plane, exploring form as maps, as entire stories, and understanding where in there I was getting lost of, of how do you expand all the way to the horizon and then actually feel from the center that there is a longing and a need to come back to center. Yes. What happens, you know, every part of a story could be, okay, so now your hand is here. How do you get back to hear and what is the meaning of actually softening coming from a yang action and being willing to soften into the yin field dissolve back into the darkness gather energy again and then create a movement there was this there's just been this powerful almost like conversation with an inner longing of of the integration of spirit and form of what it is to know that I am a, a a formless you know that we are slime that we are more like the banana slug I know Yuvia you're here the banana slug on my lost coast trip in May became our like mascot we were just like may we be the banana slug, just watching them on the earth, you know? And 
And so there is something that the water is with me in, in the standing forms. But what your work did for me is that in my entire time of practicing and learning in the school that I learned in, was I just nowhere was I bringing my body to the earth and just letting it dissolve and letting the forms dissolve and coming into that like nourishing place and then standing back up and finding what form is from that place. And there is a way that even in my own teaching and my own practice, I started feeling the exhaustion of the insistence on the forms mm-hmm. and that I need, I absolutely need. And most of my classes now I start on the floor. I have to feel that dissolution and, um, and then feel that also in my, in my life that it's like when I'm at an impasse around a creative process, understanding more often than not what's needed is to go to the floor and dissolve mm-hmm. in order for something too new to be born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's, it's so good. So we have about so, yeah. 10 minutes and then I'm going to open it up for conversation. So let's, is there anywhere you would hoping we would go that we haven't you know, not that we had this scripted at all. We didn't know. No. I think Liz, like something we've talked about is just like, you know, even in the relevance, I think it's relevant beyond Oslo, but the relevance of what the dance, what the exploration of form and formlessness is yeah. in this moment in, in Europe, when there is a war on the continent, in this moment of everything that is happening in the topside world, like just what does this have to do with now? You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, I would actually like to speak to something that, that I just heard. Uh, is I just heard on NPR that it kind of weaves us back to the very beginning and the people who go out into the wilderness and into the land marking their timing and doing their camping and mm-hmm. stress and all the, the, the way in which we do things as human organisms. Um, it, I don't, I don't know the name of the chemical peat or something like that. It's a, it's something, it's a chemical and wait till you hear where it comes from. It comes from, um, uh, uh, water, uh, repellent clothes. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yes. So they've measured it. It is absolutely everywhere in rainwater, everywhere on the globe. Now they don't. It is an endocrine disruptor. Yes. I just learned that from someone on my trip. And they, and they said, you know, the scientists don't know all the things it's, it, it's going to disrupt or is disrupting, Mm. but there it is. And the other piece of reality is that we have surpassed what we have constructed as form. There's more structure, cement, buildings, objects on the globe than there is living organisms. Let's just stick with those two constructs and realities 
because I don't know what reality is anymore. <laughs> I read something really well today about how, you know, if you, if you, those who think of themselves as having an empire are shaping reality and you and the rest of us are going along going, is that true? Is that not true? And it doesn't matter because we're shaping it. But if we just take those two issues as, as, a, as where we are in time and space and, and how we sit with that in our own cognitive um, capacity of being with that and and yet we have this animal body that is going to die. And as somebody said, the plants farm us. You do know the plants farm us. You know, we become, we just, we become compost for them and they grow new life. You know, so we can come at this from all different angles. Um, but we're in this you could call a magic moment. Um, we are in a huge disillusion of human impact on earth. And we don't really know. We don't know. We don't know. We can no longer assume we know what, what is to be. So we really are in the unknown. And maybe we've been there as human beings many, many times. But in my lifetime, there, there, there has been a sense of, oh, we know what we're doing. <laughs> we did all the ecological things in the 70s, you know, like we were ready to, you know, okay, stop the plastic, stop this, stop that. See, we're having an impact. But, you know, 50 years later, it's meaningless. We knew that in the 70s, that there were billions, getting going to be billions of us, and that might not be good for balance and of an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But that didn't change for billions to grow more. So we have consumed, we have consumed that which nourishes us. Just sit with that for a moment. We have consumed, we have literally eaten and defecated what, that which nourishes us or that which we think we need. It's another way to put it. When you say that, Liz, feel this like the call as a human being to be more of an expression of living nature than a human expression of concrete and pipes and engines and machines. Like, like that we actually aren't like, this is not a metaphor. We are nature. We are, we are nature and, and part of, part of the ecological preservation, I think is, is through our bodies and, and the way we, we move, because I think we, it is so easy and we have become such a more expression of the mechanized concretized world so that when bodies come together what's coming together are machines and concrete in its expression of form in its expression of creativity or lack thereof and it feels like it's like can we attend to ecology here to to make our lives more of an expression of the living natural world that's where and, our, that's where our power lies is mm -hmm. in the disillusion of the machine concept and the construct mm -hmm. that is 
has been part of the overculture, part of what really is in many ways only about 500 years old. That's how quickly mm -hmm. we, we took over as a machine, as the idea mm -hmm. of mechanistic models. So if we can't dissolve mechanistic models, right, in ourselves, if we right. sense how that mechanism is literally in our tissue, is literally in our thinking. When someone says to me, do you think I can change? That to me is someone who is mechanized. They, they are no longer recognize themselves as a living organism because you can't not change. Sorry, sweetie, yeah. honey. You know, it's like, wait a minute. You know, are you hearing what you're saying? So to me, language is one of the places we change the, the paradigm, uh, the, the, the construct. It's how we don't think we have to deconstruct the construct. We have to actually go to the living system and allow it, allow her, allow the energy, allow the waters, the fluids, the tissue mm -hmm. to restructure us, to make us human. Right to actually make us human, to return our, into humanity in not what we think human beings are as separate as animals, but that original black woman who gave birth to the first one who became, you know, where all our DNA and, you know, ancestral lineage goes back to. That impulse, whatever that impulse was to, for our brains to do what we're doing, you know, where do we allow that to dissolve back into that back brain, into the animal body, into a relationship with the earth? Into not being an object moving through space. Right, or relating to the world as object, relating to the yep. climate crisis as object, relating to everything as object to, to actually take up the truth of ourselves as, as living process. And it has and, to, and, and to be an expression of that. It has to actually be a tissue change. It can't be. Yes. Uh, it can't be. Conceptual, intellectual. Yeah. No. It actually is, and that's what I'm talking about, my ability to begin to actually recognize that something has shifted in me um, that is, you know, and may, you know, and for all the reasons, but there's something shifting and, and that is the form formlessness. It's moving in and out. It's showing up. It's, it's dissolving. It, it has movement, not external movement, but internal. And that is what we all are. So all I'm doing is not trying to deconstruct something. I'm, I'm actually moving, turning towards. So that's why I tell people, put your hands in the dirt, you know, put your feet on the ground. And when you go out into the wilderness, which, you know, in some ways there is no wilderness anymore, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but less humans, right? You know, you're going into less human spaces where you can start to feel the vibrational field of what it is to be a living organism, a living being.
that is not part of that construct, or at least you've kind of dropped below it for a little bit. You've dropped into some other terrain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's part of what formlessness gives us is we can drop into other consciousness. You know, when people talk about, you know, all kinds of images they have and they're not, um, to me, you know, they're they're disorganized and dis uh, disassociated and they're fantasies from the point of view i'm not opposed to fantasy i'm not opposed to dreaming i'm not opposed to any of this but when they're it's not grounded in bone if it's not grounded on land then there's actually not you have to land and locate because you actually did come to the earth and yeah. what i see that as is actually uh, the constructs insistence on how we arrive here the fact that we've literally now this is my lifetime in my lifetime i've watched from you know being i was born in a hospital but but i was the beginning of hospital births that's how old i am okay i was the beginning that my mother and no all born at home okay so i'm the beginning and I've watched it get more and more mechanized and women lose more and more of their power of knowing what it is to give birth. They've become more rigid, more locked down, more abdominally obsessed, more incapable of shape-shifting because form to formlessness is about shape-shifting. It's about moving into that uh, uh, animal body of the slug or the slime mold and actually knowing that that information is part of you. You actually know mm -hmm. that slime. You actually know that slug. You know, you have slug in you, you know? Like we are all part of the same kinship. But if we can't shape shift, then we hit up against that and that's the other. That's no longer mm -hmm. part of life. So I, I see the insistence that we're going to be machines from the day we arrive here. We don't hear birds singing. We don't hear water rushing. We don't smell fresh air. We don't feel the sun on our bodies. We are isolated and objectified from the moment we are conceived at this point now. And even conception is now mechanized. Well, that's not a happy place to end, but it, we should probably join. <laughs> <laughs> to you for your last comment <laughs> I think something that you have said that I appreciate you know is I think it is well one of the things I love actually about reading Dr. E Clarissa Pinkola Estes's work in Women Who Run With the Wolves is that what she and this is how she stands in the world too as a activist as an elder as a matriarch as a writer is that she understands these stories as timeless and that what we're facing now in some ways isn't new. She's not shocked by any of it. There's not some big shock about Roe v. Wade, about the climate crisis, about all the things that are happening because it is, it is the play of, of sort of like the forces that would extinguish the light, that a forces would extinguish light. And that is actually 
a, a part of the contra nature of the psyche, of human psyche that has been around for as long as we have been around. And what I, I love so much about what that actually ignites is, is a kind of resilience. This is just like, no, this is not, this is, this is new. Yes, are we at a, another level of potential crisis? Absolutely. Uh, that, you know, one of the things she has in, in her letter to a young activist is, is do not lose heart. We were made for these times. We were made for this. We are made to meet all of this. And it's something that you speak to, Liz, is that because we are, we are life, we are nature, not nature as object, not nature as metaphor, not nature as something, because we are an expression of life, that, that we are part of the transformation that the way the transformation is also trying to occur is through us. And the only way we're actually going to be a part of the transformation and evolution of this moment on our planet is to be willing to dissolve and reappear as new form and dissolve and reappear and dissolve and reappear. And, and to, to feel the crisis not as object, nothing in our lives is object what is it to be in relationship as okay where is that here how do i be in my organism in the intelligence of the life form that i am and you know something that you talk about a lot liz is we don't have a body we are a body yes. we don't have a life we are a life one of yap manerval's most beautiful things that I quote all the time is that the soul uses cells to appear. Our soul has used our cells to appear itself in this reality. And to, to, to admit in, in living form that we are a body, that we are life, not that it is separate. Mm, beautiful. Great place to end it.